This is episode 47 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So you have a topic you want to discuss. Yeah. Um, well, in the interest of summarizing the topic at the beginning of the episode, I would like to discuss why software freedom is so important to us. To who? To me and you. Oh. Just us? Well, I mean, I, <laughs> I think that, uh, that we're really passionate about software freedom. We uh, work to uh, to forward software freedom all the time, and we talk about it a lot in um, at conferences, and it's it underlies everything that we talk about in our podcast. But at the same time, I don't think that we've really taken the time to sort of explain why we care so much. Well, I used to give though long ago, I mm-hmm. used to give a talk about this. Um, it was sort of a, a, basically I designed the talk originally because RMS said I needed a talk that was just like his when I went to work for him. Um, Wait, so this isn't you disagreeing yeah. with me about the topic? No. No, no, this uh, is you just, just beginning to discuss the topic. Yeah, pretty much. Okay, good. Uh, so <laughs> I, so I, I had this this uh, talk that I, I, first time, actually somebody was asking me on IRC about giving talks about free software, and I told them how bad uh, I was giving that talk uh, when I first gave it in the late 1990s. It was 1989, actually. Uh, and eventually I got better at it uh, and gave that talk. And there's a bunch of recordings of that talk. I don't think we would want to include a recording of that talk in this episode itself i'll link to it because it's okay. available so there so uh, how old is i'm it? done <laughs> well, <laughs> so, listen to that I'm, I'm kidding <laughs> but i am that's i mean that was what the talk was the the first half of that talk is just designed uh, and I, i've been thinking about reviving that talk in some way for the reason you raised this right because people tend people who are zealots basically tend not to explain why yeah, I mean, we've gotten to the point where it's so it's obvious to us. I mean, or, or rather, I mean, it underlies so much of what we do that to revisit all the time would be exhausting. Were we to do it every day anyway, you know? I mean, to to go back to basics. But at the same time, I think it's good periodically to focus on the why and uh, think about. It. And I, you know, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. In part because I've started an initiative for messaging for software freedom, uh, which uh, was actually my keynote at Libre Planet this year. Um, but, uh, but it's something that I started working on at the GNU 30th. And I, I just think it's so hard to explain why software freedom is important to people who don't already understand it, that, you know, we need, we as a movement need to step back and take a look at it. And I, I sort of have been thinking about it in those terms and observing how my own thoughts about software freedom has changed over time in part from how I started in the field really, well, I guess I, I, I started as a, an engineering school, but like when I went to work at the Software Freedom Law Center, I really thought that free and open source software was cool. And then it wasn't really until, I mean, the working with the passionate developers who were my clients convinced me, um, but then it wasn't really until I needed proprietary software in my implantable medical device that I sort of, you know, I was gonna say got religion about it, but that's not really the right way to describe it, that I, it, it, I, you know, it, it really became my passionate cause. Well, I, I think that 
people, I, I, I don't mind actually the religious analogy anymore. I've been giving a talk lately where I talk about how religion and politics are the two things you're told as a kid in polite society you're not supposed to discuss. And I think, and I talk about both of them in the talk. Um, and uh, that, that's the talk that actually talks also talks about the issue of transubstantiation and the difference between Roman Catholics and Protestants on the issue. So it really does, uh, it does discuss religion. But I think the, the, the similarity to religion is that much of the reasons why I believe in software freedom as a universal human right is an issue of belief, not an issue of fact, in the sense that I can't prove to you that the that that somehow it's morally wrong i mean this is what kant tried to do right kant, kant tried to f f find every moral principle and create a, a, a logical proof that things were right and wrong uh, and while i'm a big fan of kant uh that's Immanuel kant the philosopher I, I i don't think you can actually do that when you believe in something you can't prove it correct in in a mathematical sense or a log logician sense it's tough because i mean if you believe that a a, a position is correct it doesn't need to be akin to religion. There is, you know, you sort of make the reasonable conclusions that you can based on the facts that you have at hand, and then you go forward in the way that you think is correct, adding new information as you go and being willing to reevaluate. I find that I, I don't like the analogy to religion at all because I, I just feel like um, I feel like it's a it's a it's a different issue because we really I mean we're we we are basing our views on you know on factual understandings from situations that we encounter again and again and again, academic studies that we read. Um, well, I, I didn't base my beliefs about software freedom on any, any real studies or facts or any, anything like that. I mean, I felt that's sort of what open source was doing, was trying to say that this is some factually based situation. I, like most religious people, frankly, uh, had a personal experience that made me sure that Free software is correct, or a series of personal experiences. So that why don't you? Me. I mean, like, why don't I go into interview mode? Okay. <laughs> why don't you? Why don't you talk? Because I think you might. I think you talk about this in your. I, I haven't listened to your introduction. My very old to talk. Your yeah. very old talk in a very long time. I, I did listen to it a long time ago. Yeah. Um, I think I last delivered it ten years ago. I think you you recommended year. it to me um, when I was relatively new at SFLC. Mm -hmm. um, but it's not a bad talk. It's just, it's just, well, I think you uh, might have a different perspective on it now. Um, no, I, I think the first, the first half an hour of that talk, I, I think is pretty much what I, uh, what I still believe and what, uh, what is still basically correct. It, it's a, it, it was, so I so was originally, what happened. Well, I was originally, I mean, I never wanted to do anything other than computer science, um, at all. Uh, somebody in college told me once, uh, that, that, uh, I said something about changing your major or thinking about changing your major. And I was like, I thought about changing my major once. And they said, what, from fireman to computer scientist when you were five <laughs> or something? You know, because I wanted a computer so badly. Uh, and my parents couldn't really afford one. Uh, and then the Commodore 64, after it had been on the market for uh, for basically six or eight months and the prices went down, uh, my father bought one. Uh, now, my father was a programmer as well. I, I mean, he. Uh, I, I like to point out that there was a time when insur uh, insurance companies hired you to write device drivers. He actually wrote uh, IBM 360 device drivers for a, a, a mutual insurance company. Um, 
because uh, th- there was a time when you had to do everything on the computer from writing the actuarial mm. software to device drivers uh, in the 1970s. And so, uh, so I, you know, I grew up in, a, in an engineering household. My grandfather was a was an engineer at, at Westinghouse back when it was the largest employer uh, in uh, in Maryland. Uh, eventually, uh, ceased to exist in Maryland. Um, and so I had I had grown up as basically only wanting to be a software developer. That's all I ever had an interest in at all. I mean, it's the only thing I was interested in. So you were interested before you even had a computer. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I I How did very you know? much wanted to get a computer. I, I don't know. You don't know. I have no idea. And um, I learned basic at eleven or twelve, and started doing uh, game mods mostly on the sixty-four. So mm-hmm. they, they were all written in in six uh, in um, sixty-eight or two assembler, so you could. You could basically edit the, mm-hmm. the, the assembler code and just basically, and basically what most people did, I didn't do anything that advanced. You just, if you, the simple thing you could do is change the strings, right? So right. you could put your own name into the characters yeah, we in the did game that too, and that sort yeah. of thing. Um, I didn't know 68 uh, to assembler well enough. I only knew basic. So I didn't, I didn't really make any major changes, um, to the programs. I wasn't like one of these people who crack the, 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 Copy production on games. I wish I had been, um, <laughs> but I was not. And so, and so, I, I was interested in computer programming from the beginning, and um, and so I, I majored in computer science my freshman year. I, mean, I went in with that major declared. I was thinking about majoring, double majoring in in foreign language, some foreign language or other, but didn't ultimately, and just did a minor, almost a minor, in, in one of them. Um, but uh, so it was actually Emacs that was your first introduction to free software. Well, right? it, was, it was more. Co- well, I mean, I think the story is more complex complex than that. So, so my father hired me as a developer, um, paying me. Uh, I think I, I think I made nine dollars an hour to start um, at, really? right out of high school. Wow. Yeah. Um, which was not bad. That, that was a lot of money then. Yeah, it was not bad, but it was it was less than it was so much less than. I mean, most developers were getting. Twenty-five or thirty dollars an hour to do. Yeah, but that was days. before people were. I mean, some people had been dropping out of college for sure long before that, but it was like it wasn't until like you know when we were leaving college that people were dropping out of college programs. That's true, but but I mean, I think I, I mean, so we we worked with a couple of consultants at this this blood typing laboratory where where my father was a, was a contractor for many many years. Uh, we had, at one point they had a lot of funding for software development, and, and they we had four people there total, including me. For a while, and uh, and those those other guys were charging. Uh, I mean, the really good one was charging. I think he was charging fifty five or sixty an hour in nineteen ninety one dollars, and the other guy was charging like thirty five. So right. for nine bucks an hour, I was basically free because every day I worked was an hour they worked. So it was right, right. I, I was so cheap that it didn't matter that I didn't know anything uh, except for some Pascal and Basic. Um, so that was my first time I got access to a Unix machine, and so. Um, I started basic. I, I sort of took to system administration early. Uh, I was sort of in charge of the of, of that aspect of the of the system. So I was installing developer tools for people and that sort of thing. And I, it drove me nuts because uh, VI on that system you couldn't uh, you couldn't suspend it because it didn't have job control. This was Unix System Five release three dot. 2.3. So it's before it had job control or streams or, or so, well, sockets, which the BSD people would know as, but it was called streams in the system five days, early system five days. So it had none of that. Um, so you could edit one file at once. And so that the, I downloaded Emacs in part because I was trying to figure out how to edit more than one file at once. Like mm-hmm. I have two, two files open on a, on a, this is an ASCII glass TTY screen, mm-hmm. right? And so 
I, I downloaded Emacs for that, and that's that's how I first got introduced to free software. Um, so, and I've I've told the story on the podcast before. I think that that uh, there was this huge fight between delete and backspace in early Emacs days, and what key should be mapped to backspace, and whether backspace and delete should be the same key, and all this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And some terminals had Control H as backspace, mm-hmm. and Control H was helping Emacs, and there was all this fighting about mapping Control H to backspace, and it was harder to look things. I, I it's hard to talk to young developers today. It was harder to look these things up. Yeah. Right. You had you, you couldn't. There, I mean, I had much Usenet harder, access, but it wasn't harder. it wasn't constant Usenet access. We had a we downloaded a batch of Usenet. This is every why night. all those VI mugs were so popular when I was in college. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I, I I basically had this uh, you know had had this problem when I first. No, actually, I had to port Emacs to the to by basically commenting code out. Uh, most of my early free software development was commenting code out for for broken systems. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so I got Emacs to compile by basically commenting out all the stuff that needed sockets. Um, and so I had it running on the 3B2. And when I got it, I hit Control H thinking I was hitting, I was hitting backspace. And I ended up falling into the menus and seeing the GNU manifesto and the GPL both. So I read them first in, in 1991. Now we recorded an interview with Stallman that I think we never published. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, we should, we should publish that. We should publish it. Cause in it, you, I think you, didn't you ask him whether he had Done this on purpose. Well, we, you can hear his answer when we uh, when wait when you hear it. Um, so we'll play that uh, at some later date. Anyway, so that's that's how I first read the GNU Manifesto, and I, I was I was somewhat convinced at that point, but it didn't change my life at that point because mm. it didn't change how I thought about things necessarily. It was an interesting. It was kind of like you felt when you first. Right. And it, it, like you thought it was interesting and and and, and cool. cool as you said it. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't. It wasn't what I was. Focusing towards, and I didn't think I was a good enough developer to work on any of this stuff anyway, uh, as far as that. I mean, I always spent my whole development career thinking I wasn't good enough for any of this stuff. So, um, I wonder how much more advanced software freedom would be without imposter syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, so anyway, I um, I went to th- th- so this was my the summer between my f- my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college, and I went to college and majored in computer science. And they gave us access to a VMS machine, which I never liked. I mean, I, I learned things about it because that was the machine they gave us access to initially. Um, and I ended up breaking into the Unix machine <laughs> so I could get a Unix account, and um, I got in trouble for that for breaking into the Unix machines. Um, but uh, because I knew I knew some Unix, right? And so I, I and I is that how you got hired? I never got hired oh, by, oh. by actually. Um, I found out decades later. Uh, I went back to give a talk at where I went undergrad, and actually somebody had argued for hiring me. And the sysadmin, she really didn't like me, and so because I had broken into all our machines, and so they didn't hire me. Because that's how a, a, a couple of the people who I I, uh, I learned from at mm-hmm. uh, Cooper Union's Computer Center had been hired because they had they had. Yeah. In the end, yeah, I just got a letter. I thought I was going to get I, stupidly as a freshman. I thought I was getting kicked out of school for this, which you. Probably Probably would never get out of school for that because um, I didn't really do anything. <laughs> right. Um, so I mean, they sent a letter basically um, to me. Uh, so uh, still terrifying. And, and then the worst part was though the computer science part wouldn't let me have a Unix account until I needed it for class, which made it made it longer for me to get a Unix account in the end. Mm. Um, by the end of the my end of my time there, I had installed uh, GNU Linux the lab for the entire. And I was this is having the lab, but that was mostly a volunteer thing for computer science department, not for the main. The, the, the access was run by the main IT services. So anyway, I, but the thing was, is I became obsessed with Unix and I got a laptop when I, when, uh, my, the end of my freshman year, uh, I saved up to buy a laptop and I had Windows 3.1 on it. Um, 
and uh, and it was very difficult to get software for it, and the software was expensive if you if you wanted it. So I, I mean, I, I often say I came for the freedom price and stayed for the freedom freedom mm-hmm. because that's what mattered as a as a student without much money. I've I, I was very frustrated that I couldn't find any software. I did a, I downloaded a lot of shareware stuff and tried to hack together a system on Windows that I could use for work uh, to do schoolwork on, and was never able to get there. Um, around that time, the, this, is, this is some of our older listeners will remember this. There was a um, so Solaris X eighty six had come out. That was nine hundred and eighty five dollars or eight ninety five. I can't remember, remember which one. all of these little because facts. this was like, such a I'm, big deal to me. I, I mean, know, but I you wa- remember the version of Windows that you? Ha- I can't remember any of this stuff. Yeah, it wasn't three one one by the way. It's three one. Um, I remember. Anyway, so um, it's amazing to me. I, 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 I lose so many details. Anyway, so okay. uh, so so um, I couldn't force Solaris X eighty six. It just come out at that point, and I was like, well, I mean, it might as well. They might as well said it was a hundred thousand dollars because eight ninety five was so much money. Um, and this is again, this is nineteen ninety two dollars at this point. So um, I actually tried. I was on ninety one. The end of ninety one. So I tried this system called Coherent, which this company named the Mark Williams Company released. Um, that was a ninety nine dollar Unix for PCs. He had bought a System Five license from AT and T to build a, a, a Unix. It was proprietary, um, but it was Unix on the PC, and it had all sorts of problems and, and bugs. And of course, it was proprietary software, so I couldn't fix any of the bugs or even try. It just right. it just would crash all the time. And um, and so I was still running Windows 3.1 and Coherent on basically two different drives. It wasn't a dual boot. It was like I switched drives to switch them. Um, and that was frustrating. And he, he, at that point, I was reading CompOS Minix because a lot of the Minix people were talking about running Unix on PCs. And I saw, actually, I saw go by on Usenet Linus's first post. I read it when it was posted. Mm. Um, I'm fond of saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that. That I actually read his post when he said, not big and professional like you know, that post. Um, I remember thinking that, well, that's not going to go anywhere. Uh, actually. So I, I admit that I thought that. I was like, I was like, well, this guy is going to try to write it, write it from scratch. And there's Minix and there's Coherent and there's nothing else. And I actually posted a lot to CompOS Coherent trying to help people and trying to figure out myself how to get it to work so i finally when sls uh came out uh which that that's the precursor to slackware um it was actually a floppy a set of floppies you could install because most people were installing uh gnu linux systems by booting windows and running a program to bootstrap the kernel an exe file on windows to get the kernel to boot that's how you got the kernel to boot because mm. it couldn't boot off a machine it couldn't really boot off a machine like from a hard drive um, SLS was really the first distribution that was able to make it so you could put a bunch of floppies in and install from scratch. And I did. So then, then I was running Google Linux at that point, but this was all about getting a Unix machine on my laptop. Mm. Like I, like I basically would, and at that point I was terrified, I was terrified about the future of my career for a different reason. I thought I wasn't going to be able to work with Unix. I thought that there was so much Windows development going on that it was going to be extremely difficult to find a job working just uh, only be willing to do Unix stuff. Mm. Um, so I was pretty worried actually that, that I wasn't, gonna, I was from the very beginning, I was worried I wasn't going to be working in my field because I, I was not going to work on windows. That was clear to me. Not for, not for proprietary software. I want to be clear about that. Just right. for technical reasons. Right. All I cared about were the technical reasons. Unix was a better way of looking at things. And I just couldn't imagine ever working on a windows machine or a Mac. I just would never do it. And so I was, especially once I had SLS installed, but again, I didn't, I wasn't in the politics at all. I didn't care about the politics at that point. Um, so I graduated and got a, started getting jobs, and I, I won't tell all these stories because I, I don't know if, I don't think it's valuable because I've they, I tell them probably better in my talks that I'll link to, 
But I just had a series of experiences where I was either a developer or a sysadmin, and I was either writing or supporting proprietary software. And Karen's not yawning, so the story's going <laughs> yeah. too long. Well, I've, um, I've heard, I mean, yeah. you know, we've, so, we've talked about this. So, but, but the, the thing, this is what turned me into a zealot, which was once I got out my career, and I wrote proprietary software, and I saw how proprietary software companies treated their users. I remember one experience uh, where I found a way to refactor something and told my boss that I could refactor it. And, and we just had a user group meeting with the users of this proprietary software. It was, it's, this, it's not even worth explaining what, what the application was. It's completely pointless. Um, but there were a bunch of users of it who really depended on it, and they had complaints. And I said, uh, I remember saying to my boss, I probably used the wrong words. I wouldn't frame it this way now if I were in the same situation. I said, oh, for free, I can get this feature because I can refactor. And they said, well, he said, well, can you figure out a way to turn it off? And I was like, well, yeah, but like, why would you do that? And he's like, well, we would want to sell it as an add-on. Mm. And I was like, so we just sat through this user group meeting where users are complaining about this. They're paying monthly maintenance fees anyway. Right, so this was a case where they had monthly support for this thing that they were paying for for updates. And this was effectively a bug that we were going to fix. And they wanted to find a way to, to rip people off and sell it as an yeah. upgrade. And that's just wrong. It was a wrong way to treat the users. I, I, I ended up just not doing it. I quit that job about you know, six weeks later anyway. Um, but For other I, reasons or for that reason? Um, I was just job hopping a lot. I, was, I mean, it, <laughs> it was complicated, right? I hated all my jobs, but I didn't understand why. Like, I hated every programming job I had. Because of that, because of this, I'm looking back, that's why I hated it. Because I didn't, it, it wasn't about making better software for people. It was about how can we make money? How can we do this so that people will be addicted to it and, and use it and keep giving us money for it? And what, what, what? I mean, addicted, you mean rely on it. Especially well, when but it comes with rely, rely, situations. rely helplessly, right? I mean, that's the whole point of proprietary software. Rely on it. So how do we well, get so, them locked into well, us? Oh, right, right. Absolutely. Locked into absolutely. us and no one else. And so no other software will do it. And they have to keep coming crawling to us over and over again. How right. do we get them to come right. crawling to us so over and over again? So how did you again? move from best business practices to software freedom should be a right? Oh, that was because I switched to system administration. Because I, I actually okay. was, I didn't understand any of this at the time. I thought, I just hate development. That was what I had. And I hate business. What I was saying in my head. Well, <laughs> like, yeah, I always... That, business, that was yeah, like corporate well, business scummy. That was true. I didn't even think I figured that out at that okay. point either. I just decided it was... I must hate software development. I was actually felt pretty horrible because I was like, I, I trained to be a software developer. I just hate software development. That's what it is. Because I thought that was software development. I mean, realize the, the context, right? This is pre... Googling around for stuff didn't exist. There was no search engines. I mean, AltaVista well, was, was sort of there. Archie and, well, there was Archie uh, and AltaVista had just launched, I think. I mean, I, I, uh, I found my, my first so. recipe online using, 97. I think it was Archie. Yeah. So, yeah. but anyway, the point was it was very difficult. Other than Usenet, it was very difficult to, to sort of interact with people. And Medical. most people doing free software were doing it as part, like, like Larry Wall was doing it as part of his job at JPL and, and other places. So people had jobs that just seemed to let them do this stuff. That was really interesting, but you had to work to get to those jobs where right. you could actually do cool right. stuff. You had to pay your dues or whatever. And I was like, I just hate software development so much. I can't do it. So I switched to system administration. Uh, the joke I always just tell is that I found another area of computing I could do that's much more enjoyable and people treat you well <laughs> and all this sort of thing. It was called system administration. So I became, oh, I'm sorry. You all call it dumb. I'm sorry, I'm offending these <laughs> these young people who think they're better than being a system administrator. I think system administrators are great uh, and important people. And so I, I, if they want to say DevOps, that's fine, but don't don't be hard on people who want to say system administration because that's what it is. Um, so I 
uh, I took jobs doing sysadmin work. That's where I became a zealot because being a skilled developer and seeing bugs in operating systems that I was supporting. So I found bugs in Solaris and bugs in other operating systems or, or system software that I was supporting. And even if we were paying for support, they wouldn't close our bugs in part because they would say, oh, well, you know, this is not an important enough bug for us. We're not going to close it. Uh, and being a sysadmin is what convinced me to really think proprietary software was trying to hurt me. It was. It was clear because I would go around to users and be like, I can't fit. They would report a bug. I would try to fix it. And I would hit a bug in the low underlying operating system. I used to run strace on all the Solaris binaries to catch where the system calls were happening that broke because that's the best I could get because I didn't have source code. So I'd run strace, I'd find where the bug was, I'd report it down, I'd get it down to a couple of lines of saying this is where the problem is. Once I found a bug that strace from strace, I could clearly see it was an argument swap thing where it took arg a and b and they called it with b comma a instead of a comma b. And I was like, if you switch those two args and recompile it, it will probably just work. That's the bug you called. B comma A comma, instead of A comma B. Um, and they wouldn't do it. Mm. And I actually, I, I remember, I, I remember at one point, like, for that, that situation, trying to download a, uh, like, like a binary editor of some sort to see if I could, like, edit the binary to wow. switch the args or something. Cause I didn't have assembly. I didn't have the right, object code. Right, right, right. So I couldn't even use an assembler or something. I had to, like, edit the object code somehow. And I was like, this is insane. I remember thinking, this is stupid. I'm not going to fix this. I'm just going to tell everybody to live with it. I'm just going to be the you know, bastard operator from hell type person. Just like, screw you, I'm not fixing it. Because it, I, I, I was angry that they wouldn't fix it for me, so I was just going to be a jerk to all my users and be like, screw you, I don't care. I have a workaround, So, because you guys use the system different than me. And that's, that's, what, that's the kind of thing that sort of made me realize, like, this is, this is what you do. This is why people in the computing, this is why sysadmins are jerks, right? Because they face this kind of situation. They can't fix it, and they feel bad. And so the way they deal with feeling bad is just treat other people bad. And I basically not saw Not everybody, but, yeah. but, but I think it's hard not to fall into that after this experience over mm -hmm. and over again. The vendor mm -hmm. just screws you over and over again, and there's nothing you can do. You feel helpless. And that feeling of helplessness, that's what turned me into free software zealot. Because I became convinced that, that basically the computing industry would be uh, full of people who just hated the world. Uh, and I was going to hate the world if I had to be in that computing industry. So interesting. I think actually for me, it was also a feeling of helplessness that made me passionate as well. I hadn't thought about it in that way before hearing you say that. Um, but I think that's sort of maybe how it works, right, is when you feel powerless and you feel helpless and and it seems like it should be so simple <laughs> in many ways it 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 galvanizes you it's really interesting yeah i i think i think that um i i, I think that this and this is this actually is completely related to the thing you and i argue about all the time which mm. is that i believe that free software can really only or the software freedom message can only convince developers because I think that many I've discovered that many non-technical users feel that same helplessness that I would feel but I only felt it because it was proprietary software because I was like if I had the source code I would open it up and work with it I think that maybe you because of who you are um, and because of your history and your experience I think you're better equipped to understand developers and 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 what they will respond to Whereas 
you know, I, I think that there is a message for non-technical people as well. I don't know what it is. I never know what to say to them, right? Because they feel helpless using GNOME 3, right? And no. Some people do. <laughs> some people do, but right. some people do. Or, you know. or they feel hopeless using any you know, any given free software that has a bug, right? Because software has tons of bugs. But when they inquire about GNOME three, then you know, then then they have the experience of having. I mean, or at least so. There's a um, there's a fantastic human rights lawyer based in New Zealand um, who um, I should. Her name is Suzanne, but I let me get her last name. Um, she's also worked on um, on really cool bits of legislation. Um, uh, Suzanne uh, Ruthman. She's really cool. She she is basically married to a, uh, a a Debian person, and so kind of like came into it that way. Um, and I had this conversation with her because I wanted to understand how non technical people could become so passionate about software freedom. Because she is she's helped with the organization of LinuxConf Australia um, and. Um, is is really cool, and so I, I was asking her about her use of software and um, and her use of GNOME, and I asked her if she was using GNOME because I knew she was using Debian, and um, and she said, "How do I know <laughs> if I'm using GNOME three?" And so I told her, and she and I asked her what it looked like, and she was in fact using GNOME three, and so uh, and so I asked her about the transition from GNOME two to GNOME three, and she says, "I don't know what you're talking about," and I said, "Do you remember when everything changed?" And she said, oh, yes, I remember when everything changed. That was a really terrible day. <laughs> and, um, but when she, you know, so she had a really hard time transitioning from two to three. Um, but when she started inquiring on the things that were frustrating her, she got the help she needed. And now she's really, you know, I mean, she loves it and is a great advocate for it. And I sort of feel like if we can understand, you know, I think what's funny is that I think people often see me as a non-technical person in the free and open source software worlds, but um, hilariously, I'm way too technical to be able to understand someone who's not technical. I'm coming from a, you know, a, a, an early programming background. Like you, I was, you know, programming in basic, actually younger than you. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's just sort of, I think I, I may have gotten a, uh, you know, access to the I Unix would have started younger if I had had a computer. Oh, I'm, I'm, not, <laughs> look, I'm not saying I'm not privileged, you know, like, <laughs> but my dad was also an engineer and, um, and he, he loved showing, you know, he, we always, we had a computer for me. We, I grew up with punch cards around the house and, um, you know, we, he, he, when I remember, um, you know, looking at the punch cards going through the machine and like imagining what animals they look like. And my dad saw my interest. And so he took me around all of the, the computer equipment and showed me what everything was and explained to me how everything worked. And so this was, and then we, as soon as we could have a computer in our house, we had one because he needed it um, for work and he loved it too. So I, I mean, I feel really privileged to have had all of that access from a very early age, but Really, I mean, I don't even know how old I was when I wrote my first little, you know, Karen rules program. <laughs> go back to ten, but uh, go to ten. But it was very, very young, and um, and so it's impossible for me to imagine, you know, this 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 attitude about computers has been, you know, my attitude since I can even remember what a computer is or what it's for, um, and that I I never. I, I never hand wrote a paper for school, for example, which for someone of my age is extremely unusual. So, um, so that plus I went to engineering school, you know, I, and then, um, and then as soon as I went to engineering school, uh, the very, there was like a summer class before the semester began. So, and since I lived in the New York area, I was able to, to do that. It was a, like a CN Fortran class. And, um, and they gave you an account as soon as you, um, you know, for the, for the class, you needed one. So I, I, I got into the computer lab and it was like, 
awful. I mean, I've talked about this before in terms of like the experience of women in, um, in software generally, but like there were other girls who had come from straight from the class to the computer center to get our accounts at the same time who decided they would come back another day because they felt so uncomfortable, um, based on the attitude in the lab. And when I went to tell the computer center head about it, he said, um, I was, I just said, just so you know, there are, you know, there are other women who were here with me and they, they felt uncomfortable and they left. And he said, you're hired. And I was like, but I don't, you know, I know some things, but I don't, obviously I don't know it, you know, very much at all. And he called like the top people, the top, top two top people who were, you know, who happened to be there that day. Uh, actually, they were always there <laughs> um, and called them into his office and said, teach her everything, you know, and it was, it was really cool. Um, it was really, really cool to have that. Anyway, the whole part of this is to say that, you know, that I'm, I'm, I'm actually much more technical than I think people think of me as because I'm now a lawyer and I spent all that time away. And, and, be, and because our community is sexist, so they assume you're not technical. Yeah, there, there is that, there is that too. But the point is, is that I'm, it's even hard for me to understand how to advocate better to non-technical people because I forget what, you know, ordinary, I don't know what that means, but ordinary people know and don't know what non-technical people know and don't know. I'm just Beth not. Flanagan calls them muggles. Really? <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's tough, but I do find that I can get people to care. And what's tough is that the way that I get them to care for me is talking about my medical condition and the pacemaker defibrillator, but it only starts there. And I feel like because I can get them from the, I could die, I have this, you know, I need this device, here's why software is so important to my life. Because I can get them from that to thinking about software as a whole and the ethics of technology generally, I think there's a way. I just think I don't. I don't see exactly how to do it yet, and I might not be ultimately the right person to figure that out. So, was it your heart device that caused you to be a zealot? I think that was the last straw. I think I was heavily down. I mean, you knew me at the time, mm -hmm. so I think I was heavily down this path. I think that what really, what probably caused me to become a zealot was hanging out with people like you and all of the clients at SFLC who were so passionate. Now, I was writing IRS. My first, my first task as a software, you know, software freedom law center lawyer was to write um, applications for tax exempt status to the IRS. So talking about software freedom from a, a broader perspective, and it's a, uh, you know, in a in a in a greater social context, and so and and talking to um, to the developers about their work and why it was important and why they cared, and then helping them, um, you know, over the next few years on different matters and seeing how much people sacrificed and how much they cared about software freedom, that was sort of paved the way. And um, so I was already pretty much there already. But when I um, when I was prescribed the the defibrillator, and there was no way to look at the code, or anything or know that know who had reviewed it, I really, that's when I had that helplessness, like just that real and you I, I mean, I know you were there with me. And it was just it was, uh, it was just horrible. Now, how can I separate that? I don't know. It was all conflated, right? It was together with the helplessness of having a heart condition and the helplessness of worry, you know, confronting my own mortality. But it was, it solidified all of the work that I had done up until that point. So what else do we have to tell everybody about why you're a zealot? Is that the, is, I mean, is that, you say that's the final thing? I mean, is that, no, is I mean, that the, I mean, I think people are going to take away from what you just said that, that it's the primary thing in some sense. So I'm not sure. I mean, I, I don't, I, I, I think there are a lot of reasons. 
Um, I've been thinking about it a lot recently because I watched the first episode of Silicon Valley, um, which I don't know. If, I think you've you've watched, but uh, I'm only one episode behind. Yeah. Oh, okay. I only saw that one episode. I'm not sure. As we record, it's last night, so. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to watch any more of them. Um, I'm not really a huge TV watcher, but, um, but, uh, you you actually said I should check it out, so, uh, so I did. Well, it's because it's, it's relatively accurate. Well, I mean, a lot, some things are exaggerated and, you know, there are, some things are jokes. The world is exaggerated. I mean, that's the... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of good commentary there for sure. But what was interesting is that, so they have that party in the first episode. Um, and there's like this whole, you know, Kid Rock plays and nobody cares, nobody yeah. cares and all this stuff. And it, it, it does, you've said it has, uh, has echoes of some of the parties that we've gone to, um, around the conferences. And the open stack parties in particular. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually think it was totally different than that, but, oh, okay. um, but other than the fact that there were a lot of fine cocktails at the open stack. And free parties. Fiji water for all. It's like, we, we <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but what was what really kept striking me was that there throughout the whole episode there were these references to social justice, and you know and like well, that's the, a, that's the theme through the whole series. Is it? It's the, it's this where uh, this whole we're making the world a better place yeah. by doing stupid stuff. And it made me so yeah by doing something that's just by developing our product. Yep. And I think that this is one of the major problems that software freedom has is that it's like we're talking. In, in some ways, it's related to this co-option of the software freedom messaging that you, you know, that you or message that um, that we've both talked about, but you and especially in your talk recently, um, where you make a comparison to the environmentalist movements. Um, so some of it is is a co-option of the software freedom message, but part of it is like a is it's like a distortion, and it's tough because I can understand why the IRS, when they look at free and open source software, you know. When they look at free and open source software organizations, why they might not be able to determine which ones deserve status and which ones don't, because jargon like this is, uh, you know, using that really dilutes the whole thing and it, it confuses things. So I was talking to um, a friend who had recently had an interview. I would think of anybody the IRS could discern, could discern it though, right? If, if anybody can, the people who read C three applications all the time should be able to. Maybe, but when you talk about software products. Yeah. Well, like I mean, they think of it in terms of what is this a, getting is this their a initial product? denial. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah. that's sort of a similar situation where, where there's that's, that that's a trade association denial. So yeah, it's a little bit different, even, but, but it's, it's even amazing. worse in some sense because it's like you can't even get, which is a lower bar for C6 than C3. Well, it's just a different bar. I mean, yeah, it's but a you common get le- business you get less interest. Stuff. Well, so there. Because you don't get tax deductible donations. So you, you get, don't, you but you have, you do get advantages. So they yeah. have to show that they, it's, it's, in some ways it's harder because you have to show that it's a common business interest and not just trying to put a competitor out of business. Right. But, like yeah. It's a, which is what you're not just, the IRS is saying is that you guys, right. you guys are just all getting together trying to kill Amazon. <laughs> right. Right. So, um. Which might be true. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's. The IRS it's a, might be it's a, right. It's a tough analysis for both the C6s and the C3s. And so a friend of mine was interviewing for a sysadmin position and he was asked, um, you know, by. I hope he didn't say sysadmin because they won't hire him unless he says DevOps. <laughs> I think they were advertising for assistant actually, because I did read the uh, oh, well, the job description. But um, who would want to work in a place that still <laughs> hires sysadmins and not DevOps people? Well, anyway, it was one of the many companies that um, that talk about social. They must justice. be the same places that hire the COBOL people too. <laughs> well, a lot of companies now have like social justice as like a you know 
and, and there was the, all the jokes in Silicon Valley kind of mm -hmm. support that um, as like a as a as a corporate mission, um, which suits them when it suits them, and mm -hmm. when it doesn't, it's out the window. Um, and so this this um, interviewer asked my friend how um, what he thought about issues of social justice, and could he show of an example where he's passionate about social justice? And he said, well, you know, I, I care about free and open source software, and he and and he, he said he could practically hear the eye roll on the other side of the phone. Um, and, uh, and he was telling me this in, at a party. So, uh, so there were other people around and they were like, yeah, I mean, who cares? I mean, like, he's talking about so software freedom. Is that really a social justice? And I said, well, you know, if we talk about, I, I said, you know, what do you think when you, when you hear the term access to technology? And everyone around the room was like, oh, well, that's totally different. I said, that makes you think about, you know, a real social good. And he, they said, yes. And it's like, it's, it's so much of this is wrapped up in the rhetoric. And software freedom encompasses a lot of these concepts. But in order to have, you know, but in order to have ethical technology, we sort of need a lot of different pieces from both from software freedom and from other areas as well. And so, I don't know, I'm kind of rambling on a little bit. And this bit, is exactly but... why we're entering the dark ages, right? This is exactly why. Because we are separating the, the cloistered monks from everybody else. And we're using the, the church of, of, wow, cool technology, cool toys to separate them. And basically... And this is why I think it's so important to talk about it and to find ways that we can explain why it's so important. Oh, I, I think it's... I, I think that we can write for history uh, to show that there were people on the side of right on the other side a hundred years from now, but... Um, or more. But yeah, we're, we're, our gross is cooked. There's no... There's no turning back from what's going to happen, I think. I know you think that. That's very depressing. And um, I guess... Despite the fact that I'm a trained pessimist by being a lawyer, I'm at heart an optimist. And I, I really just feel like if we can find those areas like the medical devices situations where we can demonstrate this emotional connection and the importance of ethical technology, I think we'll, I think, I think there's an opportunity. I hate, I, I hate to think about the fact that we probably will have some more massive failures in the near future which will also underscore, I mean, conflating security with software freedom is certainly convenient from time to time to advocate for it, but there really is something to be said about that, um, showing the differences between how um, what happens when there is a security failure in a proprietary software solution and a free and open source software one is, um, is great for being able to advocate our message, um, showing how advantageous for society it is when we free ourselves from single vendors showing how we are we need software freedom to build a civilization that if we think about you know how what kind of world we want to create what kind of infrastructure we want to create that we're relying on instead of taking um, the ad hoc corporate solutions with proprietary software that we've been doing when we think more holistically as a society we can sort of see how software freedom fits into this and this is where I sort of feel like we need to we need to all become advocates and we need to all start talking about this stuff because otherwise we really will be in the dark ages, which you think we will be in anyway. So maybe yeah. to you this is a waste of time, but to me I think this is incredibly important. And by talking about it, it means that we're much more likely to get written into history. Well, yeah, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, I mean, I'm not as interested. I mean, but. I'm, not, I'm not sure how we how we keep. I mean, we also have the 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 problem of of uh, of carbon dioxide emissions and that we probably won't. Most of the stuff we have, we won't have. So 
it's probably true that the next generation of computing will have to be built slowly from scratch again. Because if there's enough recorded and written out free software, maybe it won't be built as a proprietary software industry. Uh, because we're probably going to, I mean, we're basically most of the government's probably going to collapse and all that <laughs> over the, over, over the fact that, I mean, I'm talking in the next 200 years, right? Because I hope I live long enough to get a hint. Of which one, which thing's going to happen. A hint of the, the, the hope that I'm going to be wrong, that you yeah. can see that I'm going to be wrong. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think we have, I, I don't think it's going to happen so quickly. I mean, I think we have our lives, but in the next couple of generations, we're going to face that. So, so I, I, this is why I think that the software freedom is a tough, uh, a tough issue to be that concerned about because there are bigger issues in the world. Um, there are much worse issues in the world. And so, oh, and so well, absolutely. But this is sort of like what I, the way I think about software freedom is it's a building block issue, right? It's a, so it's a fundamental that, infrastructure. I think the only reason I work on it is basically selfish reasons. Um, I, I do software freedom as a social justice cause because it's so personal to me because I wanted to be a computer scientist and I couldn't become a computer scientist because I would have to eventually sell. But you don't disagree with my point that we're building fundamental infrastructure that our society relies on and that we will be so much better off that a civilization requires that our code is shared. I I agree with you, but I I don't think... uh, It's complicated in the sense that, that if... Uh, and this is why some, this is why I understand, even though I don't agree with why so many people in computing are obsessed with with issues of of privacy and spying and government over control using computer technology, uh, and corporate over control of using computer technology like like Google or or, or, or Facebook that sort of thing. Um, the reason those issues end up getting linked, I think, is because that the society where the software is proprietary or even just web service that you don't have the source code to, we, we can't actually, we're not actually collaborating on the infrastructure of our, of our, of our life as far as technological mm-hmm, life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, that's why I think right. those I issues are I conflate these issues, but it's true. They're all interrelated. Well, and, and I think that, I think that the software freedom issue might be low on the list compared to a lot of other issues. I think the main problem we have in our society is, is, uh, well, not the main problem we have in our society, but a problem we have in social justice advocacy is, is no one will take anybody else's issues seriously. Um, I work relatively hard to do better than my peers in taking seriously. I mean, I, I'm sitting there with, with a T60 that I bought used and I'm picking the T60s now because they run core boot, uh, and other, other ones don't, but I've always bought used hardware even before the core boot question, uh, because I always felt it was right to buy used hardware and lots of people in our community refused. I mean, I mean, I, there was back, I, I used to work at SFLC, uh, <laughs> did not end well, but there was effectively well, it ended well in that we were doing this. I don't know. True. Well, most of it didn't end well. But one of the things that happened at SFLC is there was basically a revolt um, of the policy that I said that we would buy used hardware. And basically, people started buying hardware. Like, basically, I stopped being in charge of approving purchases because people were so obsessed with buying new hardware at SFLC. And so that's an example of people who were ostensibly supposed to be working towards this software freedom cause. I, I don't think most of the people there were. That's another story. I think um, you're, you're, you were. Uh, and you happily used, the, used hardware the whole time. I, I should did. That. I, I did. should note. Yeah, um, although I'm, I do, I really do like my yeah. um, new-ish yeah. Zarys and But I mean, that's, I, that's I the little bit that I try to do is so. I try to, try to not buy stuff. I don't, try not to let my stuff land in landfills and trying to like rescue 
um, rescue dogs. I rescue dogs as well, uh, but also rescue <laughs> computer hardware that otherwise would get landfilled or, or badly you know, would sort of end. I mean, I I use hardware till it's die. I'm still using. You do this too. I'm still using the HTC Dream yeah. that Google gave me in 2008 or something because it's not broken. And so why why not use a phone that's still working? Like there's no reason to switch phones. I had a broken whatsoever. screen, but um, but thankfully Allison Chicken yeah Allison Chicken donated, donated her phone. One. So yeah. thank you. Allison. But you still have the broken screen when you didn't get rid of it, right? No, it no, I mean, it still works. So I'll, uh, I'm curious because I have a non-working keyboard. I've been wondering if we could take it. Actually, I wonder oh, if we can take fun. the HTC Dream apart. I wonder. I have no idea if you can take the. It seems you should be able to resolder the connector to the screen okay. of the keyboard. We should we should totally talk about this. But, but this is. But my point. But the reason right. I'm bringing all this up is that that you know, we put some effort in to these environmental causes, other causes, um, I think that it's very difficult uh, to, and, and for example, all the conservancy paper, I buy 100% and make sure at least has 50% post-consumer, right? But if I'm really good, I would get 100% post-consumer. There's only so much you can do, right? Like, I mean, there are only so many causes you can volunteer for. I've been working a lot on the um, Cooper Union. We, I'm part of the committee to save Cooper Union. We just... Uh, well, I made uh, the local news recently, you know. Yeah, we, Totally. Because um, we finally launched the uh, the lawsuit against um, Cooper Union to keep it tuition free, so you can you guys could check that out if you want. But that's a separate side issue. So it's kind of, you can only do so much. You know, you've got your your causes, but you you know, but we try we try to um, to be true to as, as many social good causes as we can. Well, I think most people don't. I, I think most people, they lock into their issues. or They don't think I, I think about it's too, it. It's too overwhelming. And, and, and technology, know. and this is why it's so insidious, is that software in particular, it's underlying everything that we, not everything, but almost everything that we do now. And we create these, we take these like proprietary corporate driven um, infrastructure that we then wholly weave into our lives and our business and our society and we're not thinking of it in terms as like a fundamental building block and that we have choices as a society. And, and, and this is where, um, you know, I, I think that software freedom is really important and where we, we need to be explaining ourselves better. That it's sort of, it's not something that's particularly visible, you know, but it is underlying everything. And. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I would like to believe that were true. I don't actually believe it's true because I, I think that I think that I'm I'm selfishly focused on this cause because it's the which one part don't you most. not believe is true that we can convince people or that that's true that there's fundamental oh the, <laughs> that, I don't, that I don't software th is well, a both, fundamental actually I, I don't um, think we can convince people and I'm not sure software is that fundamental compared to other issues you know and and when people that there's food and water issues. And there's but software winds up slavery being a, still. And, oh, I, I totally agree you know, with it's, you. It's, I totally agree with you, obviously. But I, I I do think that software is underlying a lot of um, a lot of things that touch on all of those points as well. I mean, this is like you know that that is why me having that implantable medical device changed the way I think about it because suddenly I'm not I'm not I'm, I'm talking about something that touches my heart. Right. I'm talking about something that my life relies on. That's serious. And it's not just me. It's a lot of people. Right. Right. And then we're talking about access to technology across a, a huge swath of um, of people in very different geographically um, diverse areas and with different needs and different. And anyway, so but it, you have a better excuse in some sense because it affects your it affects your your life or death situation. But Whereas for me, it was just I couldn't be in my chosen career. But you are relying on software for your life and death every day. True. I agree with you. But. I, I, it's just seeing it is much harder. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I, I mean, I, I don't know. This I, is why I, the the you know the cyborg lawyer thing winds up having so much impact is because it's a way to talk about it. Because I can say, 
you know, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm at a very high risk of dying and I rely on this software and it's, you know, screwed into my heart. But there's, there's a, the reason why it has impact is because there's something, you know, really true about it. And I'm trying to find ways to explain it to other people. And part of the reason why I wanted to have this discussion about why we care about software freedom is because we all, we take it for granted, as you were saying at the beginning of the show, like we sort of take our, our commitment to software freedom for granted. And we also take it for granted that a lot of the developers that we talk to, feel the same way or understand where we're coming from. And I think that isn't always the case. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I think a lot of developers, I, I mean, the, the one of the reasons that I'm critical of myself for basically being selfish to work on software freedom as opposed to some more important social justice cause um, is that I think a lot of developers take that selfishness even a step further. I, I think a lot, and this is relates to the giant sucking sound of talent to Google. I, I think that most developers I have met are easily distracted by interesting technical problems and mm -hmm. they will easily um, let themselves do things that they would if, if sort of thinking in the abstract would say well that's not so good but they'll sort of let themselves be part of a system or part of a machine or part of a part of a, a culture or whatever it is to to push forward something they don't even agree with that much right right people who work for google don't like that google tracks everything you do and mm -hmm. so forth and, the, and that they you know the eu gets this decision against them and says oh well you can't try you, know, you have to give our users a way to opt out and it's like they're only going to implement in europe instead of worldwide like like they uh, basically somehow uh, you know and they made they made a free speech argument in the press i don't know if you heard this but they made a free speech argument in the press that like oh having access to all the information about somebody is is free speech like well what they really want is their own access to information about right. you um and facebook's worse in this regard and facebook's much worse really but um I, I think that people will easily be part of it just to work on the technical problem that that interests them the most right to get to work on their free software project that interests them um, I, I think I think that it, it makes it easier, and this is about the co-option, to say, oh, well, what I'm working on is open source, as they'll say. So it's all open source. It's all out there. You know, it's all out there, man. You know, the code's all out there. Yeah. Or to say, well, you've released the code of the Google search engine. You couldn't use it anyway. So what's the point? Don't worry about it. Uh, and all those kinds of justifications that people yeah. come to. I mean, to. the way I've started thinking about it is free software is a fundamental, it's like a cornerstone, it's a fundamental building block of ethical technology, but it's only one piece. Of ethical technology, right? I mean, the question yeah. is, is that yep. how important, how important is, is technology when there's these other problems in the world? That's, that's the well, thing that I, can, I question can, myself about all the time. Well, of course, but, you know, I mean, there are so many issues to, to focus on and we need people to be focusing on lots of different issues. You know, I mean, yeah, I, mean, I guess that's true. And I feel, when I want to make myself feel better, I think about the fact that there's so many people in the technology. I and mean, this is why I like Silicon Valley as, as a TV show, because there's so many people who just are those people. And they're just so egotistical and just the, all they care about is their own power and money and everything. And and they're basically corrupt people. And, and most of the technology industry are those type of people. I mean, the, the free software portion of the technology industry is really tiny <laughs> um, compared to everybody who's out there doing it. And so I, I think long term, it's uh, uh, we've got we've got a huge thing to fight. Yeah, I mean, I think can, that as, as more and more, more pieces of our society are relying on technology is particularly interoperating with one another. I think that the issue becomes more and more important because all of the ability to address the other problems that are important in our society, the social good causes that um, that are def definitely trump ours um will you know are are continuously starting to rely more and more on software well i, I the other thing so, i was thinking recently is as a society gets more civilized it has to come up with these more 
ingenious ways to mistreat people and subjugate people and get people to act certain mm. ways because right i mean you can't get away with slavery in the united states anymore you can't get away with child labor in the united states anymore you can't get away there's all these things you can't do in the united states because we've progressed and but the percentage of people who want to exploit are still the same they just have and they have no morals right they just have to find really ingenious ways to do it because it's too dangerous to i mean i mean not not that there isn't people there aren't people doing uh, i mean there's there's slaves in new york city right now that, that are being brought from other countries and they use whatever means necessary to to force them into into forced uh, work or 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 forced sex work sometimes but the, those who actually are worried about getting caught for those sort of things they find these ingenious ways like the facebook model of like we can exploit people by selling everything about them mm -hmm. to advertisers and like that's wrong too it's not as wrong but it just happens sure to be legal like, right now. Yeah, I'm not sure that it's. I mean, it's basically trying to trying to increase profits at whatever using whatever methods they possibly can. Right, and and then they, and sure they make a cost benefit it's, analysis it's, against yeah. what they can get away with. Yeah, and what they yeah, can, oh, right? exactly. But these exactly. people are these people are sociopaths, like, right? They'll do whatever it takes. Like you know, an effort to find the way to manipulate and exploit people so much as it's to find the way to make the most money possible in the shortest period of time. Right, but you can always make more money if you if you mistreat people, right? Well, it's, hopefully it's not always, always been true. but it's, it's often true. It's always true. It's always true in a capitalistic system. Mm. If if you can find a way to mistreat people or or manipulate people or hurt people, it's always cheaper to hurt people. It's always I mean cheaper as far as it costs, which means your your profits go up. I mean, think of the, the like the the car situation where uh, where GM didn't just recently didn't didn't tell people that they had this problem because they didn't want to roll out a fix. Right. Because right. it would have taken a couple million dollars off their bottom line. Right, right, right. You know, it's this I mean, this is this is the society we live in. It's the same as it was in the eighteen hundreds. It's just they it's not the same, but it's the same types of people. They there's just better laws now <laughs> in the United States and Europe to make to protect people, but they're and not. There really ought to be a law about software freedom. Yeah, but we it's so hard to get there, right? Because the only way we can get there is by talking about it. True. Okay. So I mean, that's what we just did for like a bunch of hours. Yeah, so. that's true. We should. <laughs> well, so, thanks for listening. Uh, one big segment too. You're, I guess you're upset we didn't have music in the middle. I do like the music. But... I almost tried to cut you off before you started telling your story, oh, but okay. uh, but well, people well, will hear we it now the, at the end. Now we can slowly fade out to the music. Freeze and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's faif.us. And we had built all this software to run on a particular database. It was the Informix database products that we used. All our software relied on it because everything made calls back to the database. So we would write the software and call to the database to do all the important work. Now, after a while, I started to discover bugs in my programs, like any programmer would. And one time, I spent a number of weeks just tracking down this one single bug. I was a young, naive programmer, and 
I, I, but I knew one rule, that if you had a bug, you should get the software down to a few lines that could exhibit that bug, you know, sort of a test case that would exemplify the bug, and then you could audit that code line by line and see where the bug was. So I did that. I had about 20 or 30 lines of code that would just immediately exhibit the bug, nothing else there, and I audited it, and I couldn't find what the bug was. So I took it to one of the senior programmers where I was working named Greg and said, Greg, could you look over this code? I've had this bug for a few weeks now and I, I just can't find it. I, I guess I'm just missing something. And he too audited my code line by line, checking it. And after about 20 minutes, he said, there's no bug in here at all. In fact, I think it's a bug in the underlying Informix libraries that talk to the database. And I said, no, that can't be the case. See, I was naive enough to think that if you got software in a box with shrink wrap on it from a company, that it couldn't have bugs in it. So I argued with Greg for a while, and he said, no, no, no. I've been using Informix for a number of years, and they have tons and tons of bugs in their software. But we have a tech support number that we can call. It's an 800 number. You call up, and you can file a bug report, and they'll get back to you and tell you how to fix it or to work around it. So I called in and I dutifully described this bug to the fellow on the other end of the phone at Informix Software. I even emailed him that 30 lines of source code that it would exhibit the bug so he could run it himself and see. The next day I got a call back and he said, yeah, this is a bug. And no, I don't know when there's going to be a fix for the 3B2 system. Can I close out the bug report, please? I said, well, wait a second. I've lost a couple of weeks here on this bug. And what do you mean it, there's no fix for the 3B2 Unix system? It, are there fixes for other platforms that you run on? He said, oh, yeah, it looks like this bug has been fixed on Sun systems for a long time, but there's, the, the, bug is really, or the bug fix is really Sun-specific, and it won't work on the 3B2. Now, this was a very surreal moment because we had had to become experts on this 3B2 environment. It had some strange quirks to it, that weren't common among other Unix-like systems. If I was looking at the source code he was looking at, I probably could have figured out what would make it work on the 3B2 and fix the bug for that system. And if I couldn't figure out, Greg probably could have. He'd been working with it for a lot longer than I had. But I couldn't get the source code. In fact, I didn't even want to ask this guy for it, even though he was sitting on the other end of the phone looking at it. Because I'd learned Eight years earlier, what happens when you ask someone for software who doesn't want to share it with you? And I knew a little bit more than that by that point as well. I knew that this fellow on the other end of the phone had likely signed a non-disclosure agreement with Informix. This, too, was quite surreal. He got a job called Tech Support for Programmers. And then he had to sign an agreement to promise not to help any programmers. Because the most natural way that two software developers, two programmers help each other is to share the source code, to share software, to email back and forth and say, here's where my problem is, do you have it on your end, and then work out the solution. But this guy just had to sit on the other end of the phone and say, yes, it's a bug, no, I don't know when it will be fixed, could I please close out the bug report? This had to be a demoralizing experience for him. It certainly was for us. We would lose weeks at a time because of some Informix bug or another and get the same sort of answers. Sometimes they would give us a workaround. Sometimes maybe there was a patch. 
But most of the time, we just had to figure out for ourselves. We were left helpless because of the bugs in this other software. My employer wouldn't have minded if I was fixing Informix's bugs for them. They wanted their software to work to do the blood test results right and to store them in the database correctly. They didn't care whose software we had to fix to make that happen. They just wanted the software to work right. But we couldn't do that. We had to report back to them and tell them, we can't fix it because we don't have the source code. And it turned out that this wasn't an isolated experience. The rest of my career turned out much the same as I worked in the various different types of proprietary software jobs. After a while, I just became apathetic about the whole idea of software development. So I'd heard about this other thing you could do if you had computer science experience. It was a much easier job, and you just sat around all day and told people to go away, and you didn't have to do any work at all. It was called system administration. <laughs> now, it, once I took one of these jobs, I realized that all these misconceptions were, in fact, misconceptions. But at the time, I thought, well, this is an easy way to have a career in computer science, and I don't have to do software development. But quite quickly, I discovered the same sorts of problems in that area of computer science. My first system administration job professionally was working for Westinghouse, I supported their mobile wireless telephone division that built satellite telephones. They were primarily used for things like forestry services and disaster recovery, other places where a cellular system would be down or not exist. So they were pretty specific high-end products. The development environment for this mobile telephone system was built on a Solaris installation running version 2.4 of Solaris, which was old at the time. However, they'd done a full ISO 9000 certification and regression test on their software to make sure that their build environment worked properly. So upgrading was not something we could do easily. We'd have to go through regression testing again on the build environment. So we had to stick with the older versions and just install security updates and any sort of critical patch, not, nothing for as far as new software and that sort of thing. So I started working there, and one of the first problems they had for me to solve that had been a real pain for them for a while, one of the reasons they even hired a sysadmin, was that every morning it turned out that some people would sit down at their workstations and could log in fine, and other people would sit down at their workstations, but they couldn't log in. They'd type in their username and their password correctly, but it would tell them log in incorrect and wouldn't let them get into the system. So they asked me to track this down. I discovered that there was some strange thing that if you logged in, or had logged in, in the last 12 hours, that you could sit down at your own terminal and log in just fine. So people who had logged in remotely to, this, to their own desktop system overnight via the modem dollop pool or some other way, were just fine. So what people would do is they would go to somebody else's terminal, remotely log into their own machine, and then go back to their own terminal and be able to log in just fine. This is just the strange interaction of the bug. So what would happen is the half of the people that couldn't log in in the morning would all wander to, each other's to the other people's cubicles and find somebody who had an active window open, log into their own computer, then go back to their own desk. And this wasted about a half an hour or 45 minutes every morning because people would wander into their, each other's cubicles and talk for a while and so forth. So I had to solve this problem so we didn't waste so much time trying to get logged in in the morning. The bug turned out to be in the NIS Plus system, a proprietary software authentication system produced by Sun. 
And it was an interaction bug between that software and something called XDM, the X Display Manager. The two didn't work together properly. XDM was what asked you for your password. NAS Plus was what checked it against the database. And they didn't talk together right. So I looked on Sun's website for a bug fix for Solaris 2.4, and I discovered that they had indeed fixed a number of other bugs, very similar, related to NIS Plus, but hadn't fixed this one. So I called into Sun Tech Support again, and uh, like I always had to do at any of these jobs when I found a bug in proprietary software, call up tech support, and they said, yep, yeah, we know about that bug, and it's not fixed for Solaris 2.4, and we don't know when there'll be a patch. Of course, I was used to dealing with this, so I got a little aggressive and said, well, you fixed all these other bugs related to this. Why not fix this one? They said, well, NASA asked for those other bug fixes, and they're running Solaris 2.4 as well, and they're big enough to demand us to fix these kinds of bugs, but you're just not a big enough company to demand for us to fix a bug like that. You're just a small company. I was surprised to learn that Westinghouse is a small company. But in fact, apparently it was, even though we had a division of 180 people right there at the one site of many. So I had to go back to the users and deliver that same message that I hated getting myself. Yes, this is a bug. No, I don't know when it'll be fixed. Let's just hope that somebody logged in overnight each, not each day so that somebody has an active window so we can go to that person's desk and log in. This will have to be the permanent solution. Now, this isn't to say that free software is without bugs. We have our share in free software. Some will argue we have more than our share in free software. This is not even to say that the original developer or distributor of a particular free software program will care about your bug. They might be like Sun and say, no, you're too small, I don't care about your bug. But the difference and how the situation would have been different if the software were free software would be that you had the means to fix the problem yourself, that you had the freedom to fix it or to hire anyone you want to fix it. If we weren't happy with the support we were getting from Sun and it had been free software, we could have hired someone else to support it. I could have done it myself, probably. I knew enough about programming to do it, I think. But if I didn't, I could have gotten my manager to hire somebody else instead of paying Sun for their support to tell us those kind of things. <coughs> 